The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is Full Change with Tom Laidlaw. We are recording oh, Spanish accent. No, Wait, no, what? Hold on, I just switched to like Scottish. It was so bad. Well, was the, so you're just telling me that some people have a switch. They, so you, like, a tr- like a trigger word, yeah. So if I want to say Scott, some Scottish, I'm going to... Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts. Oh, you can't do accents. Wow. I didn't know that you have it down. You don't know Can we do a Spanish one? But it's the senorita. Oh my God. That's good, right? That no, that's, you can't, you got to roll that R. But it's the senorita. Senor what? But it's the senorita. Oh, wow. Perfect. Uh, you got it. Wow. Well, wow, you're asking. What is this? I'm trying to learn Spanish too. The right? word, buenos dias. Buenos dias. Good day. It's a uh, car wash. It goes, <laughs> and I go in there, and it's all these young Spanish girls who don't speak. Any English, so I'm trying to learn how to speak Spanish too. If they're all looking, at don't say, say hola. It's very easy. Hola, señorita. Buenos dias. Pina stock. Wow, that's good, right? that's no, yeah, that's that's awesome. You are like a full to our listeners in Spain, including Marcus Fajardo. Say that, please spread this around. It's like a, it's like a from Ecuador or from Brampton. I've never heard of the accent. The Spanish, Spanish section of Brampton. That's it. Yes, have that. Well, today we we have a uh, we, we want to talk about uh, coaches. Because, I, as you know, I'm currently a coach of my hockey team. Shout out to the Saints. I coach with uh, Andy Lane, uh, uh, Lieutenant Lane, and Brian Strack. We've got a great, great squad. You coached with John Tonelli famously. Yep. And you coached with uh, Greenwich High School team, too, for a little bit, right? One year at the Greenwich Boys team, uh, they'd had a really tough year with some discipline issues the year before, so they brought me in to be kind of the heart. A tough guy. Locally here, the head coach of the female team about, uh, what, three years ago now, she lives in my complex, and uh, we got introduced to her, so I helped her. That was, that was great year coaching really? the girls. The girls are fantastic. I tell a story all the time. Boy, I didn't listen to anybody. I don't listen to anybody now. Um, but the girls were, were great. We were in for practice like, the first time. I helped some girl do something the camera was. And she, I got done. She goes, thank you, coach. Oh, nice. Then I turned and looked. Nobody, nobody's ever thanked me before for a coach. So they're, they're good. Did you do the away games too or just all the games? No, all the games. Yeah, it was good. All the practice. Oh, wow. Games, yeah, it was good. They were, uh, yeah, the, the girls are fantastic. You know, it was, uh, some of the girls uh, were, it was more of a social thing than what I mean, which is fine. It's yeah. it's high school. It, but some of the girls really like off-season training and all that. They really got into it. So there's a disparity in, in size. And, and we didn't have as many kids here in Greenwich. There's different uh, high schools that kids have, private high schools that sure. kids can go to. So it's a thinner, uh, thinner pools. Yeah. But it was still a blast. It's great. Year. I, I'm co- my ice hockey coaching experience is limited so far to Mike. This is my second year. I love it. It's great. Uh, sometimes it is like herding cats. Yeah. But the kids have such fun, and when they learn something, you see it stick. They just feel really, they feel good about themselves, you know. Yeah, and coach, I know you know this, but you get a great opportunity to really help shape shape kids' lives, right? 
hundred percent. And, and the funny thing is with these eight-year-olds, they're more concerned with their cellies than with really any of the fundamentals. So they all have great cellies. But don't you think, as you said, you've got, as you get in your head, listen, I'm not going to be able to have these kids be totally disciplined. No, I'm going to let them have They have to have fun. Yeah. Oh, especially at this age. I mean, high school is a different story. They're trying to get somewhere. This is just kids learn yeah. game and they got to just have fun. I coached, I did coach uh, a little bit of learn to play with the Rangers. I did this Buds for Hockey group with this guy at, at Fritz Dito. We talk about Fritz a lot, but this guy, Bruce, uh, Fowler, who is just a throwback Canadian guy, and he, he's funny. He yells at the kids, and he's like, like, like this. He's a big guy tonight. Yeah, yeah. Did, 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 yeah. yeah. Very old school. Yeah. Uh, a different approach, but he's like kind of like hard old school coach. Yeah. These little kids, you know, who are just learning. But it works. Some people love it. And then I have guys like you met Brendan Riley, who runs the uh, New Jersey Falcons, and he's like, he creates a family atmosphere, and they, they love him. They love playing on that team. So there's different approaches. So I think the old school approach. Um, doesn't really work as much anymore. I think I think we're, people are different. I think we're we're built different now. So you need to have that yeah. whole yeah. Society's different. Yeah, like the like you know everything strict. Like when I played, I, I I think I got a lot out of it because my coaches were hard on me. You know, I, was, I grew up on a farm. That all that mentality and everything. But now the kids nowadays, I just don't think. I mean, first of all, I think you take the fun out of it for them. So now they're just not enjoying it. So they're not right. going to get the most out of it. So they're going to leave. I remember, you know, stories like I hear my parents, like my, not, not so much my mom, she didn't get trouble. My dad told me how the, the nuns would like smack his yeah. fingers with the, with a, a ruler. They would, you know, pull his hair. Now, if they had done that to me as his kid, he probably would have been to school screaming right. or something. Totally. So times definitely change, you know, and now it's changing even more where it's like, hey, just, you know, don't be a dick to people. Just, yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah, you got to teach them something, give them life lessons. 100%. So you can't you can't beat such a hard O on these kids, you know. Yeah, agreed. But coaching you, you had you were lucky enough to have some great coaches. You had Herb Brooks, famously talked about. Yeah, you know I've told the story many times about Junior B coach Rick Hay. Uh, there's several coaches that you know, made a difference in my career, my life, moving up. But he was one of the guys that like, he really saw something in me, and he talked about being hard on me. I, I tell the story. So I was, you know, I was a hard worker, but you know he wanted me to get more. But yeah, one of the things that I really had to have down as a defensive defensive was getting back in my own zone and moving the puck out quickly. And every, it seemed like every, and I, obviously this is my memory now, but it seemed like every practice we would do breakouts and it seemed like he would yell at me the whole time. And again, he didn't, but it's just, that's right. my memory of it. And I remember feeling sick to my stomach. It's like, oh God, here we go again. But what it did was it forced me to be awake and alert, go hard back for the puck, get your head on a swivel, look around where the breakout passes and pass the puck. That's my job. And I bet you my career must've done that thousands of times. And if it wasn't for him really pushing me to get better. Now it, that spread out to other parts of the game and, and in my life to do things the right way. Right. I do it all out, but uh, he would make a big difference. Yeah, the coaches were fantastic. My college coach, Rick Comley, uh, you talk about Herb Brooks. And other guys like uh, Robbie Fatorik, too. Sure. I'll never forget, Robbie was coaching. I played with Robbie in New York. He's coaching out in LA. We were in training camp. And uh, again, we've talked about this. I just didn't know any better. Like when I was on the ice, I just had to plow through it all the time. And it's training camp. I'm like an eight year pro or whatever. It's not like I have to make the team. And he comes, Robbie comes over to me at one point. He goes, Tom, you don't have to make the team. Huh. Today I, I go and I really didn't understand what he's talking about. <laughs> slow down. He's like slow down. You're here. You're good. Training cap. So you're in the club. Well, well, let me ask this. So now, how is that coach having a former player and teammate coach you? Is it weird? Is it like oh, you're the boss it, now? Like it could be weird. But with Robbie, when he played, he was still that great friend, great teammate, and everything. But he was so disciplined. Like he right. like is like I feel like I'm disciplined now. I wasn't as disciplined back then. But he kind of separated himself in, in terms of the discipline, but not he didn't separate himself as far as being a team player, right? Which always looked at him differently because of that discipline that he had. We've talked about guys, Joe Carvalho, five, but I say to a lot of the guys we have on the show, um, I see this is total confidence to you. You're, you didn't make got it. Got there on hard work. Got there on hard right? 
he would epitomize that. Like he'd be the, a pitcher of that. So when he became a coach, he really was. Yeah, it made yeah. it just made sense. Yeah, he'd be the coach, but he doesn't try to like be that hardo with you guys now. I guess he did a little bit because he got in trouble with Mike Gretzky a little with that. Yeah, well, you know what it was with Robbie. He was very clear, great communicator. This is the way I am. This is the way I coach. And he even said to me one time, "I softened up a little bit with Wayne." He said, "No, top, this is you're going to get fired anyways. Right. Coaches always get fired, so I might as well coach the way I coach." And then I can look myself in the mirror and be happy with, with the way I've done it. Even if that means benching the greatest player who ever played. Right. <laughs> yeah. But but the thing is here with me, like we've had Timmy Waters on the show. Uh, Tim and I were partners together. And Robin Fork just loved us. There was yeah. never a problem with us because we were his kind of players. So it wasn't like there was some battle that like he's trying to get us to change our game. What we were is what he wanted us to be. Sure. So And, and that's usually with most coaches. I guess that's the way, I mean, some uh, coach will watch it. And especially when you're a younger player, you may have to conform. And Herb Brooks did that with me. I'd had that one good year, my rookie year. I think I'm going to be his two-way defenseman. And uh, quickly squashed that. Like, that's it. You're good. Well, get it out. Yeah, so, so, yeah. no, so, so Robbie, he just, that was just him. And that's what he was doing. Cool. But you, you, now you're also at Ted Sater. Did you get along with Sater? Well, actually, initially I got along with Ted Sater. That's the funny thing about it. Now I look back at him, I, I, I should be careful. I, he's, a, he's a human being, but I, I didn't. Well, things happened between him and I. So again, up to the point where Ted Seeger came in, I had played all the time. I mean, I missed six weeks because I ruptured my spleen. Sure. I was that guy that, you know, player's player, assistant captain, you know, always playing, uh, you know, playing through and a lot of guys play through injuries, but that was really who I had to cut that right. guy. And then, so Ted came in, yeah, things were going fine. Uh, then I uh, hurt my back partway through the year. And that was, and again, me like plowing through things, like have that mentality. I was going to plow through the back injury. And I, I should have, that was a time where I should have backed off. Yeah. And said, okay, you need to adjust your training. You need to do things differently. It, it just wasn't. And we thought about this too. I think to myself, okay, but that's how I became a player. So how, how would I have known at that point? Now, now it's easier to look back and say, Tom, you should have changed things. Yeah. That's all right. You ended your career early though, too. Yeah. Oh, no question. But again, uh, I just had that mentality, you know, and this is how I do things. It's worked for me. So like Robbie Fattori. Yes. Yeah. And that, and that's the truth. I, and again, you, it's, you look back and you say, well, obviously, yeah, you should have changed it. But when you're in the middle of it, you're playing. No, I mean, why would I change it? Like I, people say about like, trusting your process. Yeah. So my process was to just all, like, don't think about it too much. Get out. Don't get on the trainer's table. Just go put your skate yeah. on and go. And that's how I, everything. Until you could go. Yeah. Until you could go anywhere. I still, he knows me. I'm still stubborn. I can't just believe it. I don't, I did. We thought about learning lessons. Uh, so, sorry. So, so real quick, there's three top coaches in your life who are they oh rick a rick Comley, and uh herbie all right there you yeah. go and the, today we have speaking of coaching we have a hall of fame coach now we have a great coach you know he's had his battles with players yeah. but he's also had his success and today we have ken hitchcock up yeah good morning tom today we have a an incredible guest we have Hall of Famer on, a newly minted Hall of Famer, Stanley Cup winning coach, and an NHL coach for almost 1,600 games. We have Ken Hitchcock on. Hitch, how are you doing, bud? Good to see you. Good, Tom. Good to see yeah. you. I think the last time I spoke to you, I was in the agent business representing Brian Burrard, and uh, yeah. and you guys, uh, I think you got a few of these battles. We got a battle on the bench there. Or... <laughs> well, you got a battle on the bench? Well, not a physical battle, but uh, Hitch was used to this. We'll talk about this some more, but... Uh, uh, well, let's get it out. I, I like uh, getting right out of here. So I have been, uh, we've talked a lot, you know, like I think it all started with Mike Babcock when he got uh, got trouble for all this stuff and got fired. Obviously, he's coming back now. And uh, there was Mike Keenan. And I think we put you in that category. 
And it was interesting because I, I heard you do an interview on NHL radio uh, probably about two weeks ago. Maybe it was taped long before that, but you said you tried to keep, create chaos. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Well, I, everything, you know, the, the, the bench area and the dressing room, mostly the bench, it's the most volatile area in sport. I mean, I've, I've stood on NFL benches and it's incredible in that area of being in major league baseball benches and, but in hockey, you're, everything's close. And so it's a very emotional, volatile area. And, uh, when there's no energy, you, you've got to find a way to get, you just can't give up and, and just let the game play out. You've got to find a way to change the energy. And, and so, uh, I felt that, that creating a little bit of chaos, a little bit of FU sometimes, it turned out that way, created a different environment, a different energy, a different emotion, and then you could sort it out by there. Now, some guys do it by just flipping lines all over the place and nobody knows who's playing with who. It, it creates a different energy, but the whole aspect of it is to change the energy in the game, to change the energy on the bench, and... Um, kind of a wake-up call for everybody, coaches, players, everybody. And um, I just felt like I didn't want to give up on the game and just let it ride out. And I, I felt like we could still win it or we could still make an impact in the game, but we had to find a different energy, Tom. So you thought, so I'll use Brian Brewer, my client, that was uh, playing with you in Columbus. Uh, you guys got an FU battle on the bench there. So did you, you realize, okay, I need to shake things up here because we're just not, we're flat. So you had like, okay, I'm going to say something here and get these guys going, and it happened to be Berard in that case? I, I, I would talk to the coaches staff in between periods, and I would say, listen, just be ready for this because we're, we've got no energy, we've got no emotion, uh, we're, we're being, uh, you know, the second and third effort, we're being dominated, um, second quick, they're getting every loose puck, we've got to change something, and and so I would pre-warn the coaches, get ready for this, because sometimes they had to do damage control. Sure. And um, and then I would try to change the, you know, I felt like it was still going nowhere. I would try to, I didn't want to quit on the team. I want, I did just didn't want to let it play out. I, I felt like I still had ownership in the outcome of the game, and I, I, I didn't want to give up. And so I would, I would try to change the energy on the bench. So did the leadership group on the team, did they know this was going on, that this is part of your plan? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And uh, first the coaches knew, but the leaders knew when I was doing it, I might make eye, eye contact or, or grab them by the arm and say, here we go. go. And, here it goes. Uh, That's great. We, we got to change the energy. And I, I wouldn't do it to people. Like I knew Berard could more than handle it, more than give it back. And I, I didn't, I wasn't doing it to pick on people. I knew the people that I was talking to could really take it and, and take charge of it and make a difference. And Brian was one of the, those guys that could make a difference. And I needed him. So he, he, I felt he was a guy that had to take responsibility for changing the energy. Yeah, you got him fired up. Well, I had that same relationship with Herb Brooks when he came in. Uh, so I'd had my good rookie year. You know, I was six goals, 23 assists. And I thought, man, I'm going to be a 2 defenseman. And then uh, Herb comes in, and, and rightfully so, he had different plans. And we had, uh, so my second year was his first year in the NHL. We had a meeting at our practice rink in Rye Playland first day, or day before our first game. 
And Herb had Paul and Herb loved his speeches, right? He called everybody together to center ice. He goes, Yo, Barry Beck, this is your job. Ron Brashner, here's yours. Ron Dugay, here's yours. He gets to me at the end. He says, Laidlaw, when you get the puck, give it to somebody else. You're not supposed to have it. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure you'd love that one. And the guys are all like dying laughing. And I'm, I'm pissed. I'm like, what? You idiot. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a two way defenseman. Uh, but you know what he was really good at too? So he, 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 that was all he said to me. He said, this is your role. Get the puck up to the forwards. But he was really good at following through after saying, okay, so we've got a deal here. now. You, you, if you do what I ask you to do, I'm going to play you in all those key defensive situations. You're going to be that guy. And he followed through with that. And I said, oh, I guess I'm get played all the time. So I guess this is what I'm going to do. And he was right. That's who I should play her. So, uh, you know, it's funny. Like, I, I'm sure you're the same way too. Like at the time when he did it, I thought he was a total jerk. You know, like, like, wait, I'm sure a lot of your players have said this about you in the FU fights, right? Like, what a jerk. But I look back at it, and uh, we actually had, we've had Bob Bassett on that you coach. We've had Daryl Sador, Craig Ludwig, and they all speak so highly of you. You know, we hear these people that are, are pissed at you because of the stuff you say, but then the guys that, you know, stuck with you, that leadership group, love the way you coach, right? They, they may not loved it at the time when you were doing it, but later on, they see all the great things about it. Well, I, I, I don't want to say I was guilty of this, but the one thing I, I believed is every team I coached, Tom, I thought was special. And I thought we could do special things. And I really believed in my players. I found ways to believe in them. Uh, I really felt like every team I coached could accomplish, you know, really good things. And I wanted to push the buttons to see how far we could go. But I, I did it because I really believed in my players. And I really believed in guys individually and collectively, and I felt like if I could build a camaraderie and I could build a cohesion within the group, we could beat anybody. And and uh, that was my firm belief. And I think sometimes we're guilty of not telling the players how much we appreciate what they sacrifice right. and what they do for us. But I really believed in the guys, and I really believed that that people could do special things if if I could get them to individually and collectively to embrace the buy-in. And so that was what it was all about, was the collective and individual buy-in. You think you did a good job of telling the players how much you appreciated them? No. Oh. Be honest with you. Um, I am now, and, and we've had, I've got lots of ex-players that are friends, and I, 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 I compliment them. I don't think I did it enough, and I don't think any coach in my era did it enough when we were coaching. I don't think we said how much we appreciated their sacrifice like I do now or like I did later in my career. Uh, I, I found uh, later in my career, really when I went to St. Louis, I started to really acknowledge how much sacrifice and how impressed I was with the players and how much I appreciated what they did. But I think I was so much in the in the grind and trying to win championships and trying to be in first place and pushing hard that I never took stock. I never stopped and took stock and said, hey, um, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. I love you. And uh, um, you, I, I can't tell you how much uh, this means to me. Well, I'm asking a lot of you and you're giving a lot and I really appreciate it. And it really started for me way back in 2009 when I went into, or 2008 when I went into that's interesting. So do you think the eras are different too? Like I remember yeah, it was more like, okay, if you're putting me on the ice at the right time as a key situation, now you're showing me that you appreciate me. Like, you know, that 
like like Herbert would come down at the end of the bench he, he literally kicked me in the ass he says get the fuck out there and he didn't ask me whether i was healthy whether i was tired he just i i knew he wanted me on the ice and that fired me up so much he didn't care if i was at 100 percent or not and i guess i, I don't know I, I, like the opinion is a different era right like in our year it was more like the old blood and guts drinking beer and men you know and now like the game's changed so the people have changed now right society's changed I don't think the game has changed as much as the people in the game have changed. Yeah. It, what's really, and I tell people this, what's really changed for me is if you expect a buy-in from your players individually or and collectively, you have to be really strong at explaining where this sacrifice is going to take them. Rather than when you played and I coached when you played, we would just go on the journey together and, and sort it out as we were going. Now they want to know the end game. Yeah, yeah. And you better be prepared to explain it to them. And if you're not prepared to explain it to them, you will never get a buy-in, Tom. Yeah. And and the players will always be leery and, and unapproachable uh, when you're asking for certain sacrifices to get made. And I thought a perfect example was Butch Cassidy this year. Yeah. He explained, uh, you could see it through the media, he was explaining what he was asking the players uh, and what he was wanting to see, and he was very appreciative of when they did it. And I, th- I think he's a typical successful modern coach now, where um, he's he's able to explain the end game before they even get to the starting blocks. You touched on something there too. He did it through the media. Uh, so, uh, do you think he just did it through the media, or do you think there was other individual meetings where he was talking to the players as well? I think you do it through every avenue possible. You've got to use the media uh, to explain the big picture, but more important, you've got to make sure that the players have a clear understanding of what you want, how they're going to do it, and then where is it going to take them. They need to know where this sacrifice is going to take them before they buy in, and you need to explain all three avenues before you can even expect a buy-in at all. So, yeah, so basically you're saying it's communication. That's the big change from your era, Tom, that you communicate with these players. You over-communicate so they know exactly what's expected, and then you, you thank them when they make those sacrifices. Yeah, I had uh, Freddie Sure was my first coach. There, there was no communication. No. Not zero. It was not, you didn't know. He came one time and put his hand on my back on the bench, and I thought, am I getting, is he yanking me off the bench, send me home? And I read in his book later that he thought he was transferring energy to me. And that <laughs> that was the only communication I ever had with, with Freddie. And what's really interesting is, is, uh, I spent 22 or 23 years as a head coach in the National Hockey League. I bet you I went in the locker room posting maybe 10 times in my whole career. Really? Wow. The locker room. And now they're in the locker room all the time. Yeah. And there's a that, Yeah, that's interesting because we would think from the fans' perspective, we would think that the coach is always in there right after the game, speaking to the players as soon as the game's over. That Apparently that doesn't happen. No, I really believed in letting the players enjoy the atmosphere themselves or sharing the responsibility, and I stayed out of there out of respect for the players. I felt like the locker room was theirs, and we were just visitors in their locker room. But I tried to make the locker room the players first and foremost, and then we were the visitors that would come in and present the lineup, make the tactical or technical changes necessary between periods, and stay the hell out after the game, and try to deal with the outcome the next day, void of emotion. And, uh, you know, if they were really good, I would poke my head in and say, 
just a great effort and congratulations. Um, take tomorrow off. Um, but if, if it, if it didn't go well, or if it was just another hockey game, I stayed out for sure. I didn't want to go in. Is it fair for me to put you in the same uh, group as Mike Babcock and uh, Mike Keenan? I don't know Mike Keenan at all, but, um, Mike Babcock is one of my best friends and I really, uh, I know it didn't go well in Toronto, but I really respect Mike. Uh, we share a lot of time together. We, we live next to each other in, uh, in California and we play golf together. We hit balls together. We have dinners together. We have breakfast together. And I, I think, um, and I coached in the Olympics with him and I, I think he's a brilliant coach. Um, and on the and is on the cutting edge of development and and uh, team building, and I think that uh, he's going to show people how good a coach he is when he when you see the job he does in Columbus. So I know it went south in Toronto, but um, I also know I've been with Mike when it's been at the highest level of intensity. We we like I said we were together in the 2010 and 14 games. And I've seen him operate when it's at the highest level, and he's great coach. Yeah, and you know what? I I I don't think. Well, I, I'll speak for myself. I don't question his coaching ability at all. I guess I don't quite understand. Like and again, I have not. This is all rumors, right? I mean, the, the, the Mitch Mar Marty something happened there in Toronto with all that stuff. Uh, I guess that extra stuff that you hear about with him. But again, you know, Franz and then Detroit had a problem with him. Uh, again, I just don't think I, I I don't think he's a bad coach from what I see. In fact, I see he's a great coach. I mean, winning the Stanley Cups. Uh, Dallas Drake was a client of mine. Uh, at the end of his career, he got released by St. Louis, and he came to me and he said, "Listen, get me to uh, Detroit and don't screw it up." That's all he said. And 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 Mike was coach there, and and I said, well, "What about Backock? I hear these stories." He says, "Yeah, well, he gets the best out of everybody." And I so yeah. And I I think one of the things you know to me, Mike is a microcosm of where coaching was at and what's changed about it now, Tom. And what I mean by that is that we were all, there was a period of time of 10 years or 11 years, we were all so driven that we never had time to take stock. We never we never took stock in what was happening. And, and sometimes we were driving so hard and trying to win championships that you forget that you're in the people business. And I think we've all taken stock of that. And I've seen the way Mike is at the college level when he went back and coached. Uh, I saw the way he is with minor hockey coaches and how he has a lot of time for them. And I just think, I don't want to say he's misunderstood, but I, I think you're going to see the real Mike Babcock. And uh, I think you're going to be really, really impressed. I've, I've seen him when it mattered the most. Like there's, there's no pressure like Olympic Games. Like you think there's pressure in the Stanley Cup it's not even close to what it is in the Olympic Games. Right. I saw him with a level of calmness when it mattered so much that very, very impressive. And that's why I think this break is going to really be good for him. And I think he's going to do a wonderful job. I really do. Do you think he's learned a lot? Yeah, I think what he's learned is uh, big picture stuff. Um to not lose sight of the end game and 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 not to you have to win every battle and every war and every little skirmish. I think he's he's really big picture oriented, which I think is going to do nothing but help him and the team. Right. 
That's pretty cool. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. (laughs) I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, thank you. Can we back up a sec, though? Because you mentioned something that is was pretty awesome was the 2010 olympics so can you just talk a little bit about how you guys were feeling when you mentioned how calm mike babcock was as coach how you guys felt when parisi scores that goal now you're going into overtime in the gold medal game what is that like what is that feeling like at that moment for you guys uh as a coaching staff we were a little bit nervous until we walked towards the locker room and when we walked towards the locker room there was a group of veteran players that had taken over the room and they sounded like us and so we just did a, a 180 and walked right back out. We never said anything. I, I remember Mike said, one shot, one goal, gold medal. That's all he said. But the players had already taken over. Scott Niedemeyer had already taken it over. And, and those guys, they, they were in control of the locker room. And we we didn't do a thing. They they were already on their way to, hey, things happen. It's, it's one shot. Let's go play. And. Um, it was a lot different in 2010. Uh, it was really uh, up for grabs. Uh, we were getting better as the tournament went on, and the Americans were really good right from day one. And um, it was a lot different in 2014. I think all of us knew after the second game with the buy-in we had from the players, nobody was going to beat us. So it was a different atmosphere, but... In reality, the players took the game and took the, and took the dresser over when we needed it the most. You know, I got goosebumps there when you talked about the players taking over the locker room. That was some of the best feelings for me. I was so fortunate at the end of my career to play, you know, Wayne Gretzky was in L.A., Larry Robinson, uh, Dave Taylor, myself, John Tonelli, uh, guys that have been through it all before. And when you're in a locker room, you're not playing well. And then it's like like you said, the, the coaches are smart enough just to stay out of the way, right? Because they know you've got these veteran guys that they know how to win. They want to win. They're proud. Uh, but when you sit in that locker room and like a, you know, Larry Robinson stands up, like he was, I listen, there's Bobby Orr and Potvin and all those guys, but he was to me the best defense that ever played the game and uh, to play with him in the career and, you know, have be sitting in the locker room, he stands up, starts talking. It's like, oh, wow, this is like a, this is unbelievable. It's, cool. it's like, cool. And you know what? That's why players play forever, Tom. Yeah. And 
they keep, they keep trying to play. They don't want to leave that locker room. They don't want to leave that ceiling. Yeah. And it's, it's a great feeling inside a locker room. And, yeah. and I don't think people understand it. Like that area is special for the players. And we as coaches, we need to stay out of that area and let the team grow because the team really grows in that locker room. What if you think kids that you don't, and I mean, obviously with the Olympics, you're going to have this, but what if you're on a team that you don't think you have the leaders in the locker room that you need to have? Do you have to step in and play that role? No. You, what you have to do is is, is uh, really, I've, I've said this before, I instruct 23 players, but I coach four. And uh, those four guys need a lot of individual instruction. So I've had teams like that where it's quiet and there's not a lot of, feedback coming from there so I would work really hard have meetings once or twice a week with the, just the leaders and go over things and I so I would really coach the leaders hard um, I needed to have people I could trust effort wise uh, that could buy in they didn't need to be the best players but I, I I needed to find a way that over time I could turn the locker room over to them so I worked with them I know in St. Louis we have a meeting every every Monday, and win, lose, or draw, we'd meet with the leaders and we'd bring people in to talk about certain things. But I really worked hard with those guys so they became more vocal, more confident, and they could take the room over when it was needed the most. And you would talk to them about that specifically? Like, listen, guys, you need to take it over? Oh, cool. I would go through scenarios. I'd go through instances. Um, uh, there were times I was hard on those guys because I would say, you know, there was a say a skilled player that wasn't buying in and rather than me just go after the skilled player i'd say why didn't you guys hold them accountable accountability and respect is everything in the game and accountability comes from doing the hard things the right way and getting everybody to do those things respect comes from the way you practice and those two things had to be led by the coach and the leaders and if they're in cohesion with each other you got a unified force. It's like gold. If you don't, it's just a constant shit show that you're just, you're kind of a situation motivated and it never works long term. But you need to have those two elements at their highest level if you expect to be a good team. So it's not this way as much now, but back when I played and certainly when you got coaching, uh, the boys going out to have a few beers. Uh, it was part of the culture back then. In fact, when I started, it was promoted by the team. There's beer on the bus, beer in the locker room, beer on the plane. Uh, and it was it's kind of barbaric when you talk to some people. Like, really? Like you guys drank that much beer? But looking back at it, it was like that playing guilty, the guys together. Did you, I mean, you obviously knew that was going on. Did you condone it? Did you just turn the other way? Did you say, I, I like this. My guys are together all the time. Well, I really felt like togetherness is everything. And I sometimes created an atmosphere. I felt like, we were going in 15 different directions. I I went out of my way to make sure they were mad at me so they were unified. Oh, really? And, okay. And um, I knew when they were going out, um, and I wouldn't allow it to be an excuse. So if you if they went out on a Saturday night, we were practicing on Sunday morning, I would still go short and hard. But I I I I, I liked that they went out, but I needed I needed 20 minutes, so I went 20 minutes really hard. And then just kick them off the ice. Right. Um, so I had, I had a really good read. You know, the one thing that's really missing in this, Tom, is that one of the things that I learned 
uh, over time uh, from going to clinics and, and, and especially from college coaches was who's watching me. Right. And so I would designate a coach to watch the interaction between me and the players were their heads up, were they looking at the board when I was uh, drawing uh, packages on the board or whatever? Did I have their attention? And I would have a guy that coached me on every set, and he'd be candid. You know, it's your, you're not getting through to the players here. They're not even looking at the board, you know. Mm. So he, he was watching me rather than watch the players. And I think that really helped me understand the atmosphere and and the uh, the energy level of the team all the time. You had Rick Wilson with you in Dallas, correct? I had him in Dallas and St. Louis. Oh, that's he, right. great man. He was he was he was the guy. Okay, I was in Dallas and in St. Louis. He was the guy. I had him as assistant coach out in L.A. Love him. He was uh, you know I was he turned his back when he played and had to retire. And you know you uh, say what you saw. I was so stubborn. Like when I first started, I'm not getting on the trainer's table. I'm going to play through every injury. I'm not listening. I'm going to go, go, go. That's it. Uh, and it served me well, that stubbornness, right? I just would not quit. Wouldn't listen to anybody. Wouldn't listen to anybody tell me I can't do something. I'm just going to do it. But near the end of my career, when I hurt my back, uh, Rick Wilson was skating around me at practice in Culver City in LA there. And he'd be going, Tom, I know what you're thinking. You've got to change. I've Nope, I'm not changing. This is what I've done my whole, I'm going to go have a beer after practice and that's it. I'll be fine. And uh, he was such a good guy. He cared about me so much. He was trying to get me to change. And I just, I look back and I, it's, it's interesting, right? I like to hear you think about this because I mean, I'm sure it's the same way as a coach. I mean, to be successful, like when you're starting off in junior coaching, up, people, like you're not going to get to the NHL. You're not going to make it. And you got to have that stubbornness to say, yes, I am. I am going to get where I want to get. But I guess it's interesting. At some point, you've got to kind of put that stubbornness aside and learn to change. Like you found like you, you change things and learn things along the way when you're coaching, right? Oh, I did a lot. You know, I, I was on this constant year for, I went through a 10-year period, Tom, where every off season I would travel somewhere to watch another team of high level operate. I was in Hungary with the national handball team. I was in England, the English Premier League. Uh, I was in Germany in their Division One program. I was with Andy Reid twice, uh, Kansas City and uh, and and Philadelphia. I was with Tony Larusa. Um, I wanted to learn from other organizations, what what being on part of a team meant and how it felt and looked. And I went on this learning jersey or learning journey every year to uh, to see if I could learn from other teams. I, I learned the most, quite frankly, from the national handball team in Hungary really? about respect and perfection in practice and camaraderie. I learned a lot from watching those guys operate and and I really tried to pass that information on to the players when I, when I started the next year. Right. So what about? I felt like I owed it to people to get better every year. And owed it to yourself too, right? You want you want to get better every year, right? Yeah. For yourself. I, I wanted to be on the cutting edge yeah. of uh, not just a way to play and an understanding. I wanted to be on the cutting edge of of, uh, of leadership, and I was really focused on doing that. So Robbie Fatorik, I played with in uh, New York here, and he coached me in L.A. Love the guy. Totally respect for him as a person, as a coach, as a player. Uh, but he was very rigid. I mean, it was Robbie's, he had his rules, you know, the 45-second shifts. Rules are the same for everybody. Now Wayne Gretzky gets traded to L.A., and that doesn't work, 
right? It, it's like, and to Robbie's credit, he said to me one time, listen, Tom, I'm going to coach the way I coach. I'm going to get fired at some point anyways. I might as well coach the way I coach. Is that how way, the way you felt about it? Or did you have a player, Dwayne, coming in and you knew you had to change? No, I, 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 I had to be the one that made the adjustments. I, I didn't, I didn't, I made a mistake in 1996 when Bob brought me into Dallas to coach in January 96 to finish the season off. I brought a system that was in play by the Oilers and was in play by the U of A Golden Bears. And I brought it into Dallas and it didn't work. I needed to adjust. I needed to change. We needed to play the way that Rick and Doug played in Montreal and Bob played in Montreal. We needed that system because we didn't have the foot speed to play the way I wanted. I needed to adjust. And it was the same with top players. There needed to be, I don't want to say a double standard, but there needed to be flexibility for certain players. There were items that were non-negotiable, but they were all work-related items. They were non-negotiable. But as far as the other stuff, there were different standards for different players. And, and I, I needed, I felt very strongly that I needed to be flexible in those standards. And, and one of those players was obviously Brett Hull, right? Can you talk about your relationship with Hull a little bit? Well, I, I felt like after my second meeting with Ollie that I was the dumb-dumb and he was the smart guy. And I felt like I need to shut up and either talk about golf or music because I'm going to learn a lot from this guy about about offensive hockey. And he taught me more than any player I ever coached on how to create offense, how to make sustained offensive plays. And I learned more from Brett Hall as, as, a, as a coach than I did pretty much from any other player. Wow, that's pretty cool. And he, he was a guy for me uh, – uh, you know, he was candid. He was abrasive, but, man, was he smart. And he, he knew all the elements, how to hide on the ice, where to go, how to stay ahead of the play, uh, how, to, how to have a clear understanding, how to create odd man rushes. And he taught me a lot. And I just literally stayed out of his way because um, I don't think he ever got the credit for how tough he was. Yeah. He was one tough son of a bitch. And uh, um, I, I just felt very early on when we were meeting that if I just shut up and learn and keep asking questions, I'm going to learn a lot here. That's pretty cool that you're willing to do that. I guess we all have pride. Right? I mean, you're the coach. You're supposed to be leading the way. So to be able to say, no, I'll still lead the way, but this guy's going to teach me a lot of stuff too. That's I'm, I'm impressed by that. It's, that's cool. Tom, I really felt like um, I love being able to learn from people. Like I learned a lot from Mike Badana or Joe Newendike. I, I learned a lot from those guys. And and I felt like uh, that, that was my job to make sure I had an open mind. Yeah, uh, you know what's interesting about like it's a double standard. You really don't want to call it that, but it, so I again lucky at the end of my career played with Gretzky and Robinson, in, in particular those two guys. And uh, it was interesting because Wayne would stay out for those three or four second, uh, three or four minute shifts. And at first you think is that selfish or what? But they think no, it's not selfish with Wayne because he's proven over and over he wants to win. He thinks he's got something going for the team, so he's going to stay out there. And I think once you're with him for a while, you understand, yeah, that he's doing it. Cause that same thing with Larry Robinson, he had that play where he'd come around the back of the net in his own zone, fire right up the middle of the ice, you know, and yeah. some, sometimes you get picked off and they go down and score, but you know what? Wouldn't stop him one bit. He'd come back again, do the same thing. And then there'd be a breakaway. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm not staying over three or four minutes shifts and I'm not firing the puck up the middle of the ice, but those guys can do it. And he, I think, yeah, to me, our team got, we got that sense of, you know, you can do anything because they had so much confidence. Like Larry, for instance, even if it got picked off and they went in and scored, right back at it again. I looked at myself and I go, wow, that is like to be that mentally tough 
to say, well, you know what, I've done this before. I know I can do it just because it didn't work this time doesn't mean I got to stop doing it. So I love that stuff. Yeah, there. I I really admire when a player's stubborn. Yeah, especially with the puck, I really admire that. I I don't, you know, like I the difference. Like I give you an example. Like what I learned over time was when you want a player to get the puck into the zone, rather than say get it deep or get it to the end boards, I learned over time to change the dialect. So we changed it to hey, cross the blue line, make a play, but it's got to be a strong play, and rather than just get it deep, get it deep. And and I tried to allow the creativity to be there, but it still had to be a strong high percentage play. And over time, I learned how to negotiate with the players. So even like you get a fourth line guy who's limited in his skill, but you love him. He's all grit and heart and you know hits, does all the things he needs to do. But you, you need to go to him and say, listen, you can't play like Wayne Gretzky. You got to play differently. Is that accurate? Yeah, you can. You you don't have to say it, but you can. You can. He knows that. But here's the key thing: is so I'll give you an example. Ryan Reeves. Yep. Ryan Reeves is now a fourth line player. When I coached him in St. Louis, I thought for sure he was going to be a third line player. Every day, we worked with him killing penalties. Every day we worked with him on wall work. I trusted Ryan Reeves when the game was on the line. But I never put him out killing penalties, which I should have. And I think I was one of the guys that stunted his growth because I I still think Ryan Reeves could be a third-line player because he's so good on the wall, he makes the right play, he plays with a conscience, and he's really got a smart stick. But But he's been... He's being dialed into a certain role now, and everybody wants him to play that role. But I think he's capable of more if given the opportunity. And so those are the avenues that I looked at is, where's this guy's maximum potential, and how do I go about getting it out of him? Yeah, I agree with you. He was here in New York. Uh, he had some times there where his line was the best line on the ice because they knew how to get it down low and forecheck and all that. So sure, I agree with you totally. What about a guy like Sergei Zubov, though, where you kind of hands off with Zubov? I I just felt like um, he was a player I could learn a lot from. And so rather than me coach him, I just, I turned him over to Rick and Rick Rick negotiated with him. um, And we never had one discussion of what to do with the puck. We felt like he knew more than we were ever going to learn. And we could learn a lot from him because his hockey IQ was over the, moon and rather than coach him we need to just keep asking questions so that's what we did we asked questions power play five on five play how to defend this how to how to handle this and we learned more from Sergey than he ever learned from us I mean Sergey and I are great friends but I felt like I learned way more from him than he ever did learning anything from me it's, I got to tell you, and I mean this is a total compliment to you. Like we've known each other, but it's like this is the probably the most we really sat down and spoken to each other. And I never would have thought, uh, not at, with multiple players, I'd hear you say that you learn more from them than you that. That's probably unfair to you, uh, for me to say that, but I just I didn't understand that part of your personality that you were willing to accept the fact that yes, this person is, as a player is going to teach me more as a coach and to step back and just take it right. So that's cool. That's pretty awesome. Well, I did the same thing with Connor and Leon. I mean. We we have we have a great relationship and we're we're really good friends, but I helped them become two hundred foot players, and they helped me understanding 
on on how to on how to uh, create offensive opportunities and run a power play. So there's a, there was a give and take, and and I I worked really hard with them to, to have value in both ends of the rink, and and positionally wise, I, I I taught them as much as I could, uh, but I I learned a lot when I threw them loose on the power play and turned the power play over to Ben Glenn Gullickson. I felt like I was learning more every day watching them operate in the power play, and I felt like I could learn stuff from them, and so they're. Basically, what happened is the with your best players, if you can form a partnership, that's going to make a team really effective. And that's what I tried to do was with the top players. I tried to form a partnership. Hitch, you see these young kids like Connor McDavid come in now at 18 years old uh, and really have success too, both on and off the ice. Uh, when I was 18 years old, as a freshman at college at Northern Michigan University with our buddy Walt Kyle, uh, actually he came in next next year. But I think to myself, there's no possible way I was ready like even off the ice to be an NHL hockey player. Do you, uh, do you think it's something that I think it hurts some players actually because Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews have so much success at 18 years old, again, on and off the ice. I think now the expectation is that all these 18 years old uh, kids and now Bedard, well, he's a unique player, uh, but all these kids are going to come in and just be able to hit it out of the park uh, as 18 year olds in the national hockey. Day. Well, when you listen to the interviews, yeah, it's oh my God. There, it's all cookie cutter. Yeah, everybody same thing now, and everybody's so well schooled and so well taught that the maturity level of the players now at eighteen is like they're twenty five. Yeah, and that's what's really impressive for me is mentally they're more than ready, and physically they're not. It's still a man's game. It's still a second and third effort game, but mentally. They're with it. They're way more mature than the players were when they were 18 when I was coaching. Yeah. And that's a real credit to the way they're taught coming up and the influence of their parents and the people. Like a lot of players that come up that are good players, they got a lot of people working on the sidelines for them. Yeah. Yeah. And they're very, very mature in their thought process and you got to really respect that. And I agree. Hitch, uh, if you were not a National Hockey League coach, what would you have done with your life? I would have loved to be a history teacher. Huh? I'm uh, I'm fanatical about history. Now, a lot of it is military and some of it's socially, but I would I would have loved to be a history teacher. And, you know, I've, I've been over to Europe three times to, to go on World War II tours. I've been on World War I tours. Uh, I've, I've been a Civil War reenactor for over a dozen years. Uh, I've been on... Pretty much every battle site in the United States that that uh, impacted Civil War. So uh, I feel like I've got a really good feel on history and how the the outcome uh, affected society and everything like that. So people don't realize the cannon that is in Columbus when they score goals was that was your brain. You brought that in, right? Well, I was the conduit in between it. I, I get shit for that. <laughs> uh, uh, a guy that was a president of the team uh, made the decision, but I had input on on buying it because I, we were getting jabbed. Um, it wasn't original, and they were trying to charge us an original price. So I got in the middle of the thing and, and said, listen, this is a replica, and this is what they're worth, and don't pay a nickel more. And, and Larry went out and negotiated. We bought the cannon in Cincinnati, and uh, I... I've I've gotten a lot of shit for that cannon going off all the time and, and everything. <laughs> and that's what people don't realize. Like 
it's amazing to me. The Civil War Union u uniforms, Tom, were made right out back, right out the back door of of, uh, of the arena in Columbus oh. of Nation. Oh. There was a there was a, a, a train staging station, and they were built in warehouses behind the arena, and then put on the train, and then shipped to the soldiers. And that's that's where that blue jacket whole thing comes from. Like oh. that was a lot of the uniforms. Well, I didn't realize that. That's pretty cool. Well, I don't think I've never heard that story before at all. That's very cool. Very cool. So, Hitch, uh, you've talked about some things you, you would do differently with players, or maybe they held Reeves back. Maybe he could have been a better player. Uh, any like big regret that you look back in your coaching career that you do differently? You know, Tom. I think in general, um, yeah, there's one, and it's it's more general than anything. But I don't think as you're pushing up the ladder and you're pushing the thing up the hill that you don't pause and say, hey, how much you appreciate their sacrifice. And I think it didn't come till later in my career well, when I started to realize that. But I wished I would have had it from day one. I was so busy pushing and prodding, pushing and prodding, and living in tomorrow or living in today. I never stopped to reflect and thank them enough. And I'm going to do that in the Hockey Hall of Fame speech because I really appreciate right. it. That's right. I forgot about that. Congratulations. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. But I, I, I feel like you know what, um, we don't do that enough, and we better start doing it because it's going to end pretty quick. Yeah. So with Herb Brooks, I had him for four years. Made a huge. I mean, the time I got him early. I was a young man early in my career, still trying to figure out who I was as a player, and he really shaped me and, and sent me in a certain direction. And there's certain things he'd say, like you know, he'd uh, had the saying like passes come from the heart. Um, you know, we'd be in practice and we're kind of going half ass and then he'd stop practicing and that if you pass the buck, put your heart into it, you know, and he'd be really intense. And I really think that, I don't know if he was, I'd like to hear your opinion on this. Is there times when you're coaching, you're saying that this is going to really make a, a difference in this person's life as well? Because that really, that kind of stuff for her really made a difference in my life. Like my life now, when I'm going to do something, I put my heart into it. And I think back all the time about him saying that stuff. Well, the thing that shocked me was, uh, when this Hall of Fame thing came in, I got a lot of calls from guys that I coached midget with. I spent 12 years coaching midget hockey, 15, 60-year-olds. And there's a lot of emotional responses, long long text, long phone calls. And I can't believe how much the players feel like I molded them um, into what they became. And I'm really appreciative of that. And I probably did show it enough. But I, I'm kind of shocked, surprised, and really humbled by the impact I had with the midget players, the kids that never made a career in hockey but made a career in a business and family life and raising a family and everything like that. I was just trying to be a good coach and, and then to realize the impact that you had on them, it's really at home here. Well, I think that's one of the great things about hockey too, right? Like building a good hockey player is also building a good person. Like the two of them go hand in hand in my mind. I've coached kids for a long time and that's, I came to realize that, like people ask, like, do you want to win? I said, yeah, I want to win. But it's a process process that goes into winning that really matters, right? Teaching those kids whether you win or not, but it's how do you get to that point as a team to try to win something. So, well, and I've always felt like Tom, the game is the process of what you did before the game. Yeah. So that I, I'm a perfectionist at practice, and there and I demand the respect of practice because the practice is my wheelhouse. That 45 minutes. That's my wheelhouse. I own that 45 minutes. 
and I want perfection. You know, the flow of the game is the flow of the game. The practice, I own that. And I don't I never let anybody run drills in that 45 minutes. That's my job. And I want that control. Very cool. Okay, so proudest moment does not have to be winning a Stanley Cup or a gold medal or anything. What's your proudest moment coaching? I would say the year we made the playoffs with Columbus. That's the best job I've ever done in my life coaching. And wow. uh and it was, you know, we were undermanned. Under, we were uh, we were uh, we weren't even close to the cap, and and we got in the playoffs. I, I think that's that's the best job I've ever done in my life coaching a hockey club. That's cool. That's very cool. I like that. Uh, yeah, because you know you go win a Stanley Cup, it's fantastic. I've never won one, but I'm sure it's it's a fantastic feeling. But I mean, obviously, you have to have the players. You've got the Brett Halls and all those guys to win. You know, to do that in Columbus when you don't have the players, you got to get the squeeze the most out of them, right? So, hey, we're also where's the Ken? Where's the ring? Um, the ring is on tour. Oh. Um, it's, um, uh, I went into last summer, I went into the Alberta sports hall of fame, hockey hall of fame. And so you had to give up. So I gave up my Olympic rings and, uh, Stanley cup rings and it's, it's on tour at Red Deer. Uh, and they, they kind of own it for a year and they show it around and things like that. And then it'll come back to me at the end of the summer here. Very cool. How old are you, how old are you now, Hitch? 72. Are you 72? Wow. Good job. Look pretty good. You look good from 72. So it's a coaching all those years too. Man. Well, I sur- I put it this way, Tom. I survived. Hey, <laughs> did. Right to the Hall of Fame. Well, I got to tell you, Hitch, uh, like I said before, we knew each other before, but this is the most we really sat down and talked to get to know each other, get to know you better. Uh, and I got to tell you, of all the podcasts we've done, uh, you probably impressed me more as a person. Because I went in with this, you know, this attitude, you know, there's this Kent Hitchcock, always, you know, gallant to players and getting a few fights with the players. But after speaking to you now, like the stuff you talked about, about learning from the players and that kind of stuff, I just, I'm totally impressed by you as a person and a coach. So it's been great to have you on the show. Guys, I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed this. Good to see you. Thanks. We will do it again. Congrats on the hall, Ken. Thanks yes. a lot. Thanks. Yes, good luck in that induction too. That'd be fun. I'll be watching. Who's who's inducting you? Uh, Bob Ganey's going to do it. Oh, nice. What a class man he is. Yeah. Great friend. That's good. All right, hits. Awesome. Good luck. Take care. Thanks. Wow, that interview went in a different direction, in a good direction, but a different one than I thought it would go. Well, yeah, Mr. Kent Hitchcock. Wow. Uh, you know, obviously, I've been critical of coaches like him, Mike Babcock, Mike Keenan, and being very public about it. And uh, I want to make sure when I went on, I didn't want to hide that. I want to make sure, listen, I have been critical of you. And we talked through stuff, and it was amazing. Uh, you know, and in fact, he didn't deny anything, you know, like the, you know, causing chaos. He talked about that kind of stuff. Uh, what I was really thrilled about was listen to him talk about how he learned so much of certain players like Brett Hall and Zuboff and those guys. And, and not just... Madonna. Yeah, not just that he learned, but he was willing to learn. Like, I just, I had this impression, like, I'm Ken Hitchcock. I know everything about hockey. I don't need to listen to anybody else. But that was not the case at all with him. No, he said he learned. You know, he also, a lot of it came down that we spoke about how its communication has changed. And and you mentioned this too. When you came up as an 18 year old, you had, you were all adrift at sea. But these kids who come up now are so polished because they've been preparing for this since they're probably 12, or at least knowing they had a shot at this. Yeah. And so they, they're so well-schooled and so well-trained and educated. So they're, it's a different breed. And it's also kids who, I don't think that my way, the highway stuff works anymore. It's just, it's a different yeah, world. Yeah. And his touched on that too, talking about how you have to really explain to them, okay, here's why we're doing this. Yeah. We never had that. And 
frankly, I don't, I guess I just grew up never having that. So I just never assumed it was going to happen from a coach. Uh, so I never wanted, and like I talked about too with her, uh, her Brooks coaching me where he would come down and kick me out of the rear end and tell me to get out there. That kind of, I don't know, for me, it made a, it's a different time and different era and we were different personalities and everything, but that kind of drove me because sure. to me, he was sending the message and we talked about this in the show with Hitch that it was like, he didn't care whether I was at 75% or 60% or Honda, he just wanted me on the ice. Or he could have said to you, hey, I don't care if you're at 75%, I want you on the ice, which is the communication that's now changed. You know, things are much better at that department. They should be. Yeah. I guess, I don't know, I, I, I'm shaded because I'm jaded because of the old school mentality sure. in me that's like, no, just show up and play and do your job, right? But yeah, I mean, it's just, kids go in the world now with social media and everything. Yeah, to ask them to kind of be a different person when they come to the hockey rink than they are in normal life. It's not going to happen. But here's the plan. Here's why I think it's going to work. Here's what you need to do to execute that plan. Here's the result. And right. that's, I think that's where Hitch kind of, to me, that that's how, how he approached it. Yeah. And listen, all players, they, they want to win. There's no question about that. But they also want to do well individually, too. You know, there's, cars, there's contracts at stake, there's pride at stake. There's agents to deal with. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, I think when you, now as a coach, you're going to and say, okay, listen, here's the role you need. Here's what I need you to do. And if you do what I need you to do, here's what, how this is going to affect the team. And here's what's going to happen with your career. Uh, you know, and again, it would, it would work out that way back then when I was playing, but it really wasn't verbalized like it is now. Yeah. You know what I love to, he said he, Basically, he stayed out of the locker room yeah. post game his yeah. whole career. Yeah. You know, ten, he said maybe ten times in his whole career went into the locker room after a game. I, I always thought the coach just ran in and started rambling. But we, you know, we've had a lot of guys on on the show so far. Obviously, we've done a lot of these shows, and they generally the thing they miss most is the room. Yeah, they did the room with the guys. I, you know what? I didn't. I, it was funny. I haven't really thought about it much. But then he, when he talked about uh, where was it? Oh, the Olympics when they got the the tying goal, U.S. tied the uh, tied the game. And they walked out, him and Babcock walked towards the locker room and they got the sense they heard that the players had taken over the locker room. I started getting goosebumps and said that because I remember those times where, again, like you're in a locker room with these great players, whether it's Phyllis Mazzito and Barry Beck in New York or Larry Robinson and Wayne Gretzky in LA and you're, and you're in that locker room, you're participating in this conversation where, yeah, it's like we've taken control. It's like we want to win. We're not little kids that don't need to be coached. Yeah, we want to win. It's almost like right. Like oh. The parents said, you know what? The kids got this. The kids are driving oh. the car now. Yeah. You know, well, it goes back to, you know, go to the Herb Brooks again in the Miracle movie where he, you know, he riles up Rob McClanahan yeah. and he says to Patrick, you think that'll get him going? Yeah, you know, clean up the mess or something. To- like that. Yeah, totally on, totally on purpose. That, you know, attentional. And that was funny. I was thinking the same thing with Hitcher Stockton too. Yeah, he would create some chaos. Like, <laughs> yeah. Other, that Brian Bird, when he was playing there, he was hot. He called me up after the game and he'd gotten into a serious FU fight with the. Was he like, you got to talk to this guy because I can't deal with him kind of no, thing? I don't think he was as much with Brian. And it was interesting here. Hitch talked to because he felt like Brian was a strong enough person sure. that he could do that to him and he could handle it and get going more. So, not Brian, I think more Brian was just venting. It was more like, because like, he had. He'd say, oh, I need to be surprised. Really, the conversation on the bench was pretty heated. Was that being left you? Oh, yeah. It's unfair to hit when she's a little overweight in there. It was always, the guys would always go, oh, you fat this. Yeah, but that's, that's just, that's low. Oh, that's stupid. Yeah. Yeah. But no, that, it was, it again, the, the similarities in that regard between Herb and Hitch uh, were very apparent where they had, had a plan how they were going to stir the pot, right? And, and pretty much knew who to do it with and who not to do it. Yep. And obviously, you're not, you know, it's not going to work with someone like Brett Hull, but it, you yeah. know, the other guys, the third line guys, it's going to, you have to. So it's, yeah. it's a whole old, the old, you know, chest that of either pat on the back or kick in the butt. You yeah. know, some guys need one or the other. And that is the key thing, knowing which one's which, right. you know, like, boy, I think both cases, the Herb and Hitch, uh, they really did their homework to find out which player could handle it and which one couldn't. And, and now he's taking that right to the Hall of Fame. Have, have you been to the Hall of Fame? Uh, I've been in the Hall of Fame. Yes. No, but now you're not in the Hall of Fame. Well, I've got two Hall of Fames, Brampton, Ontario Hall of Fame. Hold on. Don't, don't, don't. And the Northern Michigan University. Now, 
it, but I also, my name is in, I don't know what my name is. So when Gretzky, you know, tied the point or got the time. Yeah. Point, so I was on that score sheet. So I'm on the score sheet that's in the Hall of Fame. But you're not really in the Hall no, of Fame. No, no. My name is in the Hall of Fame, clearly. But you can buy a ticket, obviously. No. So is your name in the Hall of Fame? Oh, yeah. There's, yes. There's plenty of top Smiths in the Hall of Fame at the NHL, in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Yeah. No, there's no top Smith. Absolutely. Is. Who else? Look it up. At top Smith? There's the top Smith in the Hockey Hall of Fame. A player? Yes. A four or I think from the 20s. Not me, but, I, I, but I'm in the Hall of Fame like you're in the Hall of Fame on the score sheet. And then we could all be in the Hall of Fame for what, $20 to pick it? Uh, oh, they let me in for free. But this would be, be a great moment for Hitch and, uh, and a nice exclamation point on his career this summer. When yeah, there's a classy guy uh, inducting in, Bob Gaining, too. Well-spoken guy, very polished. Absolutely. And he was great with us. Great interview. Yeah, it was good. Hitch is that fast. And again, uh, I'm so happy we did it. That's like a different, I look at him in a totally different way now. Awesome. All right, grasshoppers, thank you for listening. We had a fantastic show. We'll see you next time.